Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm listening to this. I, I just, I want to vomit. I, I want to run out of the room. I want to scream. But I can, I can remember just feeling numb when, when I, it was like I got hit by a car and I knew it was going to hurt. I got this news, but I didn't know when the pain was going to come. I was just waiting for the pain. And then there was denial, the point where I thought, this can't be true. There has to be another explanation. My spouse wouldn't do this. And and I just kept playing it over in my mind different ways, thinking it couldn't be what seemed so obvious. And then there was just the anger. The fact that I hate you because I loved you. And loving you is what let you hurt me. I, I was such a fool. I can't believe this. I was just so angry. And then the despair and hopelessness. This sense of we will never be who we were before. I'll, I'll never have that innocent trust that I had for you back again. And that was followed by the fear and the horror. If I didn't know this, what else don't I know? And who else does know? And this could happen again. And then the jealousy... I don't want to share you. I don't want to be one of many. Thinking of you with somebody else, it it makes me want to follow you. It makes me want to hit you. It makes me want to ask you all kinds of questions. I'm just, I'm preoccupied with, with you all of the time. Where are you? What are you doing? Who are you with? What are you thinking? What does your silent mean? What does, what does anything mean? I just, I can't get you off of my mind. And then there's regret. This would be preventable. This would be preventable if we had just never married. But then, then I'd lose all the memories. And, and what about the kids? And I really do love you. I don't want to be without that. And then the relief? Finally, something explains what's going on. All of this weirdness and all of this stuff that just didn't have an explanation, knowing this finally tells me something. But even when it answers that, it it doesn't answer that bigger why question. And that question just drives me nuts. And then there's this sense that I want revenge. I'm hurt. And I don't want to hurt alone. And you cause the pain and you can have it back. And I hate feeling that way. And then I'm embarrassed. I imagine that every person I see knows. And if they don't know what happened, they know that something's wrong. And there's this lingering sense of explanation that I don't want to give. Or when I see somebody and I think they might be attractive to you, I feel like I'm competing with them whether you're in the room or not. And then there's this sense of just being ashamed. 
My marriage used to be a source of security, and now it feels dirty. I used to come home to get away from the world. It was the place where I found rest and refuge. And now I come home to just as much sense of stress and uncertainty as I have before. And I don't feel like I have a place of rest. And time just elongates. Days feel like weeks. Weeks feel like months. And I just want to wonder, when is this going to be over I mean, I think about divorce like I think of marital suicide. I just, I want something to be over. I want the pain to stop. And there's all of these internal conversations. I mean, if you think I ask you a lot of questions, you ought to hear all the questions that go through my head. Because there are so many questions that I can't even put into words that you never hear. And there's this constant retelling of my own story. And I wonder, how many times can I replay the same scene over and over again? Sometimes it's the real scenes that I do know, those pieces of information that you have given me. Sometimes it's me just filling in all of these fictional endings, trying to find a way to piece together the little facts that I do know and the big gaps that I don't know. And I start to question whether I will ever know the truth. I don't know. There's so much that I don't know. How can I know what is true when when I didn't know this much of what was going on in my story? And then I just feel demoted. I feel like last year's model spouse. You had me and you wanted someone or something else. You were pursuing that. How am I supposed to feel anything other than demoted? And then this whole thing about changing my appearance. Whenever I get ready and I'm trying to look my best, I feel like I'm trying to impress. And I get angry. And then I feel hopeless. And I wonder if it would make any difference at all if I look good. Was it even about what I looked like? And, and I look a little better and I feel hopeful. And then I get disgusted that that would even be why you would choose me. And just getting ready and looking in the mirror feels like torture. And then there's this lack of trust. Every statement that you make gets met with a question. And nothing just is anymore. And I want you to know that that is just as exhausting and annoying for me as it is for you. And then there's the lack of respect. I see you differently. And I see myself differently. Every time I think about us, it reminds me of it. And that just makes it very hard to have any sense of respect for you or the marriage. And I just want to escape. Eating, alcohol, sleeping, something. I just, I want to get away. I want to make it stop. I want to lose myself in something. And that's why I like work so much. I like the places that still seem to play by the rules. Where I can go and I know what is expected of me. And if I do what's expected of me, I'm going to get some sense of reward or affirmation for that. It, I like that. And then there's this whole sense of food and being trim and attractive. It makes it feel like being attractive is a part of a survival of the fittest, marital survival marital survival technique it's not something I do to be a steward of my body it's something that I do to survive and not lose my marriage and 
And that just brings this level of stress and I resent it so much. And sometimes I just clean house or do other things to, to make it feel like things are normal. That I have some sense of control. That things can be like they're supposed to be. Like they were again. And even as I do that, I resent it. And then there's this sense of depression. Because I begin to realize nothing I do, nothing I ask, nothing I know is going to unwrite history. And at some point, I'm going to have to accept what happened, no matter how unacceptable it was. And that just comes over me as this sense of depression and hopelessness. And then finally, I just have this sense of loss of permanence. What am I supposed to rely on? What will last? And as I ask that question, I feel very alone. Because I don't know who or what I can count on. Now as you hear me walk through that monologue, one of the things that I want you to know is that those responses are very normal. Now some of them are healthy and some of them are unhealthy. Most all of them are unpleasant. I can't think of any of them that were pleasant. But they were normal. They were normal responses to an abnormal circumstance. And so hopefully one of the things that you can pull away very quickly, even as hearing me go through that monologue, may have absolutely made you sick to your stomach, is that you're not crazy. And that it's normal to feel that way. And as we go through these kinds of experiences, there's really three things that I want us to be able to do this evening. One is I want us to be able to put those in some sense of order. What do I deal with first? I feel like I'm drowning when I hear all of that. Where do I begin? And I hope tonight one of the things that you grasp is a sense of where do I begin. A second thing that I want you to be able to grasp is a sense of priority. There's certain things that, we, that can't be dealt with until other things are dealt with. And so there's certain do not pass go issues when it comes to recovering from the sexual sin of your spouse. And so I hope that we don't just get a sense of order, like if you'll follow these steps, then everything's going to be okay, as if it all depends on you as the offended spouse. But there's also a sense of priority, that there's certain steps that I can take, but other steps will require some degree of cooperation from my spouse, at least if I'm going to take these steps in terms of marital restoration. And the third thing that I want you to get is a sense of process. What does it look like to walk through this? You're not a machine. It's not as if this is Candyland and we're just hopping from step to step and somehow we're going to lay this out. And No, there is a sense of process and there are points where we need to rest. And there's points where your spouse needs to do certain things before you're able to respond. And so I hope as we walk through all of the different emotions and things that go on, that were covered in that initial monologue, that you're going to get a sense of order, that you're going to get a sense of priority, and you're going to get a sense of process. Now, as we do that, we're going to go through nine steps. These are nine steps that we've tried to represent here at the Summit Church, that if we could summarize them, these nine steps just represent how the gospel speaks to suffering in slow motion. And the first of those steps is this. Uh, Step one is to prepare yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually to face your suffering. Now, when I use that word prepare, 
the first thing that I want you to know is that you should not have been prepared. It, it is not as if this is, and you should have been bracing for it, and you should have been prepared before it happened. That is not at all the sense in which I use that word. I use the word prepared here simply to say that this is a longer journey, and we need to prepare ourselves for that journey. And so it's not that you should have been prepared, but now that this has happened, we need to prepare for something that will take some time to work through. Uh, and I think as we hear what that journey looks like, uh, Gary and Mona Shriver do an excellent job of helping us get started. Uh, this is the words of Mona as she heard Gary come home the first time after learning of his infidelity. She says, I heard Gary come in. And I heard the boys greet their father. Normal sounds. But this wasn't a normal household. Nothing was normal anymore. I wasn't normal. All I could do was cry and ask questions. I was obsessed. Everyone would be fine if I could just move on. They could all just live their normal little lives with all the other normal people. Nothing surprised me anymore. Except me. I surprise me all the time. And the first thing I notice when I read that quote is at the same time, everything was the same and everything was different. You know, there's this sense in which she was just insulted by life. Everything was same. The kids were coming home. They had the same kind of chatter. They didn't know what was going on. Life was not honoring what I was going through. Life was just going to move on as if nothing happened. And if I could just be okay. I mean, it, do you hear that sense of insult as everything was the same? And she felt pushed and rushed because of that. And at the same time, Everything was different. Even the things that should have been a sense of normalcy brought this overwhelming sense of confusion. Because here's something that happens. When the secret comes out, you move from being on the outside of a secret world to being inside of that secret world. Because before, your spouse was the secret keeper, and you were on the outside of that, and now you're on the inside trying to figure out what you're going to do with that secret that has been found out. And you didn't ask to be a part of this. And as a result of that, the kind of intense emotions that we opened with in that monologue are very common. And so as I offer a first piece of advice here, uh, it, it may sound a little contradictory on both sides, but it just keeps us from falling off each of the extremes that are common. Uh, one is don't hurry and don't give up. And part of that is we need to be patient as we make changes. Now in just a minute, we're going to talk about the non-negotiables, those changes that need to happen immediately. But, but when this first happens and our mind starts racing, there are dozens of things that we want to begin to change. And if we start to change a whole lot at first, one, we're never going to be able to consistently implement that. And two, some of these changes that we're making out of fear, we're going to find that are just not as important as we thought they were. And so part of what we hope to give you in this resource is something that helps you begin to implement change patiently because you know those most important things are going to be dealt with up front. Now, there's some cases where in terms of separation, 
a very quick change does need to happen. And one of those is if the sexual sin that occurred was against a member of your household. If it happened against somebody else who is in your household, then yes, some degree of separation needs to happen immediately. Usually that's as if the sexual sin happened against a minor in the home. Um, but at other times, there may be a guest in your home and the sexual happened that way. And somebody needs to move out of that home. Probably both people if it's another adult who was living in the home. Another time where separation may be an immediate response is if there's an active history of physical abuse or control. Uh, that's a situation where probably the sexual sin is not the major thing that happens. It's just what captures our attention and reminds us that something needs to happen. And then as we go through some of these non-negotiables, if those non-negotiables just are unwilling to be met, then it may be that separation is warranted at that point. Now, one of the questions that often comes up very early is the question of divorce. And I want to give you a quote here from Stephanie Carnes. Uh, her material is on the bottom of page 10 in your notebook. Uh, now, a word about Ms. Carnes. Uh, she is a secular counselor. Uh, I don't use the word secular to somehow mean bad, but just to mean that whatever she says is not biased, if you will, by a high view that Christians have for marriage. She is simply speaking from years of experience in research of working with couples about making this decision about separation and divorce very early when sexual sin uh, is presented to a marriage. And so she says, To abandon the relationship at this point, however, is akin to having a broken bone and not setting it. Broken relationships require attention as well. Failure to attend to this self-care can be crippling to future relationships. And if there are children involved, problems are inevitable. Whether you go or stay, it makes no difference. Again, she's speaking from that standpoint that says there's not really this sacred high view of marriage, but she says it makes no difference. Mending will be required. And as painful as it is, overall there will be less pain and more effective healing when the fracture is dealt with as soon as possible. The irony of using divorce as a way of escape, um, as a way to escape the inevitable grief, is that it creates more pain. You'll likely feel pressure from others to end your relationship as though that would end the emotional turmoil that you're in. Uh, but most therapists, even secular therapists, suggest you make no significant changes during the first year of recovery. And again, out of that is where I would say, kind of this balanced approach again. We don't want to make threats, uh, but we don't want to make excuses or denial either. And so when I say don't make a threat, it doesn't do us much good to say, what I ought to do, or I have every right to do this, or, um, you know, what if I had done this, or don't you think I've had the chance to do the same? Those kinds of responses are just generally unhelpful. And I say that we shouldn't do that not from a moral standpoint. I'm not waving my finger at you saying those are bad things and you're sinning just like they sinned against you if you do them. I'm making a, a plea based upon wisdom here, not a plea based upon morals. When you make those kinds of statements, then your emotions and what you have every right to do and what you might have had the opportunity to do, those things become the focal point of the conversation instead of what your spouse has done. And 
when through the intensity of what you're going through, you take the conversation everywhere else, then you add to that sense of desperation that you feel. And so in many ways, when I say avoid making threats, I'm not saying that your spouse doesn't deserve to be yelled at. Uh, What I am saying is that when you go there, you distract the conversation from that main point that needs to be on the table. Now, at the same time, I would say don't excuse or deny. Uh, To deny simply means to pretend that things are not as they really are. You know, it doesn't do you any good to go, I just, I can't handle this right now, I'm not going to think about it. Not thinking about it doesn't make it any less real. Now, I think if you're here, if you're listening to this, chances are denial is not so much the problem. Uh, But oftentimes, um, making excuses can be. Oftentimes we'll say things like, this is just what men or women do. Or maybe we say, I must not have met his or her needs, so this is really my fault. Or maybe if I had just had more sex or been more flirty or been more romantic, then this wouldn't have happened. And here's one of those areas where I would say this is probably the biggest and most destructive lie that gets introduced to the subject of sexual sin within marriage. And in many ways, I would say that we as Christians are oftentimes the most guilty of supporting this kind of lie that if you had just met their needs, if you had been more flirty, if you had been their biggest cheerleader, if you had been more supportive, then this wouldn't have happened. Hear me make my point this way. I would go so far that if you are in this room and you have ever given that advice... You should have just been their biggest cheerleader. You should have been more supportive. If you had met their needs, this wouldn't have happened. If they'd had a Cadillac in the garage, they wouldn't have looked for a new car somewhere else. You need to take better care of your body. If you have ever given that kind of advice to somebody who is experiencing sexual sin, then my advice to you is this. Write their name down and call them to apologize. Because that was horrible advice to have given. No matter how sincere it may have been, it is the wrong advice to give. It tells them, this was your fault. Your spouse's sin was your fault. And that is not the truth. That is why when we approach this subject, we approach it from the vantage point of suffering, not you as the sinner. And so please hear that when we think that way, we are making excuses for our spouse's sin. And we are supporting one of the biggest and most destructive lies that we could bring to this. Now, uh, Stephanie Carnes, she goes on to say, During times of great difficulty, it is common for people to neglect their own self-care. Feelings of shame or embarrassment often prevent a partner from turning to resources that could normally be a source of comfort to them. And then she gives a testimony from somebody she counseled. Uh, this, this spouse says, I fluctuate between wanting to forgive him and wanting to file divorce papers. I've always been the stable one in our relationship. And recently, I feel like I'm going crazy. In general, it's not advisable to make major decisions in the early days unless you need to leave for your own safety. Now here, let me make a point of clarification. Oftentimes, this idea of self-care is phrased in the terms of, I just need to put myself first for once. And while I get the sentiment of that, and it may feel that way, 
Let me give you a different way to phrase that that I think will be more healthy long term. We're not putting self first. We're putting wisdom first. Because if either person is putting self first in the relationship, the marriage doesn't stand a chance. And, and we don't want to get to that point of counterbalance to where you've been this bad, so I'm going to be bad. We, even from the beginning, what we want to pursue is healthy. And what, we're putting fir- what we are putting first when we care for ourselves is wisdom. And oftentimes in a relationship that's been marked by sexual sin, where we have been trying to balance out those things that we couldn't tell what was wrong, but we're just trying to make it as right as we can, we've begun to put other things ahead of wisdom. And when we say, you know, I need to care for myself physically. I need to get appropriate rest. I need to eat. I need to exercise because I'm under intense stress. And and the benefit of exercise is not to look good for you. It's because exercise does an excellent job of relieving stress. And if I'm going to care for myself physically, I've got to do something about the stress that I'm under. I need to express myself. And again, one of the questions we're going to come to here in just a moment is to who and to what do I say, but emotions are physically and mentally taxing. And so as I talk about taking care of myself and eating, probably taking a vitamin C booster in order to keep my immune system up, that part of expressing myself is just is learning to take care of that physical burden that my emotions bring at this time. I don't need to isolate myself. Oftentimes, out of this sense of fear and panic and shame, we begin to reduce our world to where the only person that we're interacting with is our spouse. And so the totality of our world has just become the size of the problem that's going on. And our problem is this big and our world is getting smaller. And what makes us feel like we're going crazy, we're going to suffocate like the world's about to explode. And so, again, in just a moment, we're going to talk about who. Um, but not isolating becomes important. And at this point, I would say if we need to go to the doctor uh, to get something to help us to sleep, to help us with depression or anxiety we may be feeling, uh, that's a very legitimate thing to do. Now, I would say at this point, you are not struggling from a chemical imbalance, at least in the sense that a chemical imbalance is not causing your depression or anxiety. But to have something that may help level out those emotions while I am trying to get through this is not necessarily a bad thing. And so we move on here. Uh, And Mark Lassar, he says, co-addicts may assume that when the sex addict gets into recovery, all of their troubles will be over. They may think their problems are due solely to the sexual acting out of their spouse. And when that stops, all other difficulties will stop. The problem is that they expect the sex addict to do all the work of recovery. Now again, there's a phrase here that jumps off the page that that we can't ignore, and and that's the subject of sexual addiction. Now, I don't believe that every person who struggles with sexual sin is a sexual addict, whatever you may think about that phrase. But what I did find is that this is an area in terms of how do we respond to the sexual sin of our spouse that is just radically underdeveloped. It was very difficult to found, find resources that spoke 
with a rich case history of having worked with these kinds of situations. Usually those who are in sexual sin, there is a lot written on that. But for the spouse who's trying to recover, there's very little written. And those who did write on this subject tended to write on it from the vantage point of sexual addiction. In the false love studies that are meant to complement the true betrayal materials, we address when sexual sin takes on an addictive nature. Uh, you will probably hear that maybe more than you're comfortable with in the course of this, but don't hear that every time that that shows up in a quote that we reference, that that is a worldview that we're necessarily embracing. But as we interact with Mark's quote here, where he's saying, what are the expectations that I should have for my spouse and for myself? Those are very important questions for us to ask. And so I'll start with the question, what should I expect from myself? As the one who is, my spouse has been unfaithful either through pornography or emotional affair or adultery. And what should I expect of me? Well, the first thing I would say is you can expect yourself to be all over the place. You shouldn't expect this to be a neat, progressive, linear journey towards better. Um, And with that, you should expect that a recurrence of unpleasant emotions does not necessarily mean that you're having a setback. As you go through this process and you learn of new information, that's going to be upsetting to you. And, And if we measure progress just by feeling better, then when I get new information, it's going to feel like I'm not making progress. And so there are better ways to think about progress that we're going to get to in just a moment than feeling better. Now, I should expect that the common themes of sexuality in television and movies and books and people's sense of humor and just the stories that people tell at work, that that's going to be much more upsetting for me and that's going to be part of me being all over the place. I should probably even expect that the petty conflicts that other people tell me about are going to be hard to tolerate or find interesting or give compassion to. And when that happens, one of the things that can really upset me is that I don't even feel like myself anymore. I used to care about people, and I just don't care about anything right now. And part of that is just because right now you are suffering and drama saturated. Your sponge can't take any more of that in. And as we work through that, we work through this, much of that will return. Now, we, we get to that question, how do I measure progress? If I don't measure progress by feeling better, well, I would say your eating and sleeping habits are a much better predictor of when you are getting better than your emotions are. Because part of what we will emphasize is that learning of your spouse's sexual sin is traumatic. And during a trauma, there's a lot of fluctuation of emotions. And one of the first things that we can tell that begins to stabilize in a regular way is our eating and sleeping habits. Um, And as you go through this, you may find that you cling to those things that you find dependable. Uh, Oftentimes, if you have children, just investing yourself in your kids because you know what to do for them and they are there for you. And this is a relationship that can work the way it's supposed to. You may find yourself clinging to that parental relationship or work relationships or hobbies just because they feel more stable. Now, another question becomes, what do I expect of my spouse? And I'm going to summarize that at one point. Uh, The one thing that I would ask you to expect from your spouse is that they go through the false love study. 
that is meant to complement this and work together with what you're hearing as we go through this study and what you go through in the supplemental materials that we've given you for that. Now you say, why is that? Well, it would, there are so many things that is going to be asked of your spouse in the coming days. And if you are the one that is asking for all of those, then it is very easy for you to get into that role of nag or that role of counselor or that role of parent. And all of those become destructive roles. That you become the manager of your spouse. And you begin to focus on them so much that you miss you. You miss the things that you need to do to recover from the traumatic element of this. And so part of our goal in creating these complementing studies is to give you one thing, one message that you can emphasize to your spouse so that you don't have to get off message. What I expect of you is that you go through the false, stu- false love study, you do what it asks of you, you do that either with a counselor, with an accountability partner, with somebody, and that you talk with me about the parts that it's supposed to talk with, and that is what I expect with you while I go through my part and I do the same. And that way it can be one message, and it doesn't, your voice doesn't get drowned out when you talk about your pain and hurt because you've been talking about all the managerial things that can be handled in another way. And so what to expect of them? Uh, that one thing. And then what do we expect of sex? Uh, sex is another one of those awkward areas that while in one way it's at the forefront, you know, sexual sin, this is what this is about. But what about us as a married couple? Well, one thing I would say there is sex won't be normal for a while. And so we need to realize that. And usually there's one of two ways that, that sex cannot be normal. And the way that we respond to these two ways is really the things that has the biggest long-term impact. You know, sometimes when a spouse has been unfaithful, the offended spouse begins to become hypersexual. They want to know that you want me, that you like me, that you'll hold me, that, that I'm still attractive to you. And they, they use this hypersexual response to try to calm their insecurities. And then after that, uh, they, they begin to feel shamed or dirty. Like, here I am. I was just desperate throwing myself at you. How could I do that right after you've been unfaithful to me? And again, I would say that is a normal response. That, that even after you get past that phase and you say, okay, I, I don't want that anymore, it's one of those things that may change. Excuse me. And... That sense of shame doesn't need to be there if that's what your initial instinct was. Other people feel very disgusted by sex and they don't want anything to do with it. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. I don't even want you in the room when I change my clothes. And again, normal, oftentimes that response is there. But the destructive long-term message, whereas with the other it was shame, here the long-term message can be being distant from you kept me safe. Sex was what was dangerous, and so being away from sex made me safe. And if that's the case, then that becomes a destructive message as well. Now, one of the things that as your spouse goes through the false love material, if their sexual sin did have an addictive nature to it, we may suggest that they go through a 90-day sexual fast. Uh, That's material that will be covered later in in their study. Um, But for you, I would simply say, be aware that that may be coming. 
and that that would not be a rejection of you if it is. It's just part of them recalibrating their expectations of sex and learning that sex is not ultimate. Um, But again, the main thing here when we talk about expectations of sex is that your expectations need to recognize that that fluctuation will occur. Uh, Doug Rosenau, um, he gives us a word of hope here. Uh, He says, most marriages in which both partners are committed to making the partnership work and go through the confession and repentance process usually survive and often become even more intimate. And here, I, I just want you to hear that news that there is hope. Now, he's kind of foreshadowing here that, that at this moment when news breaks, and again, this is where we're going to see that the two of you are in different places, because for you, when the news broke, it was brand new. There was one minute when I didn't know, and one minute when I did, and it felt like the world split between those two moments. And yet, when you found out, your spouse's worlds didn't know, because, didn't know, because what was breaking news for you was old news that they had been living with for a while. Now, uh, as we say here, that, that a, a marriage usually works if both people are committed to making it work. One of the questions that begs is, what do I ask up front? What kind of commitment do I look at my spouse and say, these are the non-negotiables? And I want to give you three. Now, the first is that if another person was involved in a physical relationship, in an emotional relationship, in a cyber relationship, that they break off all contact. In an Appendix B of the False Love Study, we try to make very clear what that looks like. That there's not going to be closure. This is not going to be neat. When you break off all contact, one relationship is going to die. And that will be painful. And as the offending spouse, you are going to kill one or the other relationship. And there's no neat way to make that come across. And for you as the spouse who has been offended, it is a non-negotiable that they be willing to break off that relationship completely. And again, Appendix B in false false love tries to make that very clear what that would look like. Uh, A second non-negotiable. If there was any sexual contact with another person, your spouse should get an STD test before there is any physical contact. And in many ways, that is, that is an act of love towards your spouse. It's a hard thing to do, to go to the doctor and say, I want to be tested for an STD. It makes what they just did much more real to them. But we said this was a trauma for you as the offended spouse. And one of the first things that we are trying to reestablish when we go through a trauma is a sense of safety. In this step of getting tested for an STD, it, it is a very early and preliminary step, but it's an important step of having any sense of safety. And then the third thing is that if there was any online activity involved in their sexual sin, then some form of accountability software should be placed on the computer. We list those and explain for you what a couple of options would be. Um, but here I will say at first, that you as the offended spouse should probably receive that report. Partly because we don't know who else is involved at this stage, 
partly just because getting that regular report of what's going on on the computer is going to be helpful and reassuring to you. But with time, one of the things that should happen is that that baton of accountability should be passed to somebody else. Uh, Because it is going to be very difficult for you in the long-term health of the relationship to wear both the hat of spouse and accountability partner. Because when you ask tough questions and you get a bad answer, that's going to hurt you and it's going to be very difficult for you to respond as the accountability partner. When you hear that message, you can't help but to hear it as spouse. At the same time, as spouse, if you have to choose between if I don't ask, nobody else will, then that undermines that place of safety that we are trying to create. And one of the things that is very directly said to your spouse in the false love study is that you need to have an accountability partner that your spouse trusts and that this is part of you protecting your spouse during this time. And so at first, that accountability software should be on there, non-negotiable, that's important. At first, you receive that report, but understand with time, that baton is going to be passed. So one final thought Uh, quote here under step one. Uh, Gary and Mona again. They says, the spouse needs to realize that he or she can contribute to the pain in many ways as well. One of the most common is whom they tell about the adultery and how they share that information. The truth is that those who are told all the details about the infidelity are rarely told all the details about the restoration process as it progresses. Yet we expect those same people to follow us on our path towards healing with only half the information. It is an unfairly placed burden on those who love us and want to help protect us from harm. As a general rule of thumb, we suggest that as much of the pain as you have shared with others, that much of the healing process also needs to be shared with those same people. It is very easy in the midst of the pain of finding out about your spouse's sexual sin to begin to think about pain the way that somebody thinks about debt when they're going through foreclosure. And they think, what's a little bit more? And one of the things that not just this form of suffering, but all forms of suffering, is that suffering begins to introduce into our life what I would call the logic of folly where we begin to think, what's a little more pain? And we begin to do things that add to the momentum of what's going on. Because we begin to think, what's the difference? And so as I introduce some thoughts on here about who do we tell, don't hear this as restrictive. Don't hear me as trying to hold you to a higher standard than what I'm holding your spouse to but simply saying the things that we do at this stage are really important. And so here, here's some words of wisdom and guidance that I think will help you. And so as we ask, what, what is the right kind of community? Who do I tell? How and why? Uh, one, I, I should tell those people who have spiritual authority over me. Uh, this would be a small group leader or the pastor that I'm closest with. Because if I don't, then my faith and my involvement at church is going to feel very irrelevant and detached. 
I can't tell you the number of times that I hear this as a counselor, as I walk with people, and if they meet with me only as their counselor, and, and they're starting to get help in this area, just that the rest of what they get from their spiritual nourishment in their church, in their small group, from preaching, from worship, it just begins to feel more and more detached from what is going on at the core of their being. And if they just let one or two people know who have spiritual authority over them so that those things, they don't even have to be spoken in any public setting. It's better if it's not. But just that they know and it doesn't feel like they're living a big lie. It makes a difference. It, uh, I would also say it's important to seek agreement with your spouse on those with whom you share. Now in terms of, I admit that's somewhat idealistic. And at first, it's probably counseling that is this safe, confidential relationship because usually when this first comes out, uh, a spouse is not saying, okay, I'll just, whoever you need to tell, I understand, I want to do whatever it takes to make this better. There's usually much more defensiveness than that. Uh, but for reasons that we're about to get to, uh, if at all possible, it is better to have agreement with your spouse when it comes to sharing with someone. Um, two variables I'll share back to back here. Only tell those you are willing to include in the full restoration process. And do not tell those who would quickly advise you to separate. So when you say, okay, outside of a counselor, outside of a pastor, who would I talk to just in terms of my day-to-day -day relationship? Those two criteria. Is this someone that I am willing to include in the full journey? Is this somebody who would walk with us on this full journey? Because that becomes really important uh, in terms of restoration being something that doesn't produce a sense of couple shame. And then also, I don't want to tell somebody who's going to feel like they have to protect me by telling me to leave my spouse. Uh, because that's the kind of pressuring that even we saw from secular sources that we find that unless there is an issue of safety, just tends not to be helpful. Uh, I want to check my motivation when I talk to somebody else. Am I seeking comfort or am I seeking revenge? I probably need to have a prepared statement for those who can tell that something is wrong, but they don't need to know. I need to have a way that, one, I respond to, what's wrong? I can tell something's up today. I need a statement for that. And then when I tell them what my prepared statement is, and they say, and they ask a follow-up question, I need to be able to respond to both of those. In your notebook, you'll find some guidance and some uh, statements that will help you with that. And then also, when it comes to parents and other family members, if at all possible, uh, to allow your spouse to be the one to tell. That will be a little later in the journey. And if there is a separation, then oftentimes that, that can't be the case. But that's part of the reason why, unless a separation is needed for safety, that, that we recommend that not happen. Because one of the statements we made very clear in the false love study is that you will never be more pure than you are honest. And them being the person who comes and honestly discloses what they have done to those who care for them is an incredibly important part of them winning your trust, of them becoming a person of integrity, and that is something that we cover in step five of their material, at least at its full breadth. It's some earlier steps are taken earlier on, but about step five. And so if possible, we would want that to wait 
until your spouse is the one to tell them? And then finally, there also often comes up the question of, what do we tell the children? If they can tell that something's going on, and that's Appendix B in this seminar material, that if you say, how do we talk to them? There's certain things that I would tell if they had to know a five-year-old that I wouldn't tell the same thing to a 14-year-old. I wouldn't tell the same thing to our adult child who's out of the house. How do we handle it if we have a five-year-old and a 14-year-old and we would tell them something different? Uh, We created an appendix there to help you walk through that. Uh, But in terms of step one, preparing physically, emotionally, and spiritually for the journey ahead, I think this material gives you a picture of what it is that needs to be done at this initial stage as I am preparing myself for the other steps that we're about to talk about.